Hello, everyone. I'm John Pataki, and welcome to Best One Since the Next One, the podcast that dives deeper than the emotional scars left by seeing grown men turn into pigs at age five into pop culture, film, and TV franchises and the fandoms they inspire. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at B1N1Pod to stay informed about all the goings on in Best One Since the Next One land. Also, remember to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. It guarantees you'll never miss an episode, and it helps our show find new listeners. So thanks for doing that. Uh, Today, though, we're talking Willow, a bit about the 1988 Ron Howard-directed fantasy epic and the 2022 John Kazan penned and created series, as well as revealing our top three 80s fantasy films of all time. As we take a nostalgic journey to the far corners of our imagination, we're joined by Lucasfilm correspondent Sun, Moon, and Starlit Sky, without whom this podcast would dwell in darkness. It's Stephanie Cole, everybody. Welcome. Hey there. Glad to be here. Um, excited to talk 80s fantasy, one of my favorite random subgenres of film. Um of which Willow is part. Absolutely. This is like, this felt like the perfect opportunity to talk about it. Cause I was trying so hard to squeeze it in as like as its own series or th- something like that on the show, but it's such a vast and varied genre, mm-hmm. <laughs> even like 80, 80s fantasy. You'd think it'd just be one thing, but it can definitely be several things as we'll talk about later. Yep. There's several, several different variations. My list is not super varied, but there's a lot of different ones that I left off that we can talk about as well. Yeah. Um, but the one that we're going to talk about up front here is 1988's Willow, directed by Ron Howard. Obviously starring Warwick Davis, you know, Val Kilmer, and Joanne Wally. We're not going to go through the whole movie. I'm sure you've seen it. It's been out since 1988. You know, I just kind of really, really want to know how it fits into your life. What are your memories of Willow and how far back does it go for you? Willow is funny for me because it goes back to before I was born. No, no, seriously. Okay, so oh. my my parent. I was born in 1989. Um, I am one of a, t- a set of twins and my grandma and my gr- I was my grandma's on my mom's side first grandkids me and my sister were and my grandma saw willow in 1988 the year before like right before we were born and for some reason got it in her head that we looked exactly like the baby in willow <laughs> we don't we didn't uh we were kind of chubby babies and we had like black hair and she has like blondish reddish hair but whatever for whatever reason my grandma was obsessed with willow because she thought that we looked like the baby in willow (laughs) and she would honestly consistently try and get me and my sister to watch willow when we were like four or three because she said that we looked like the baby in it so willow (laughs) has existed in my consciousness for as long as my grandmother was able to talk to me, <laughs> she would say, you need to see this movie about this little baby that is being saved by this person in this fantasy because the baby looks like you. And I would say, Grandma, that looks too scary for me because I was a little scaredy cat kid. And she'd say, OK, but just the part with the baby. And then I'd watch the beginning of it and I'd be instantly terrified of these like dogs trying to kill this baby. And I'd be like, turn it off. And so, yeah, long story short, Willow has long been part of my DNA. When I finally got up the nerve to like watch the whole thing at like the age of, I don't know, nine or something. I was like, that baby does not look like me. <laughs> that was like my first major thought. And I was like, I think my grandma was just a little baby crazy at this time. And just yeah. saw any baby and was like, that baby looks like Stephanie and Allison. Did your grandma call the two of you sticks? No, she didn't. She didn't. She just was really into <laughs> comparing us to the baby from Willow. <laughs> I love I love how manic your grandma was about Willow. That's real she wild. Was. She was very enthusiastic. I mean, she is still around and she continues to be oh, that's great. an extremely enthusiastic lady. <laughs> Really, I always like really walk on eggshells around people telling stories about their grandparents because I'm like, are they are they still alive? Yeah, you know, I mean, she's she's pretty old, but she's still kicking. (laughs) She's got that youthful spirit. So yes, Willow is like one of those movies that I am extremely aware of, and even had like the you know the the tops trading cards, and you know I remember specifically like the Death Dog card and like the General Kale card 
because they were like a really scary but also really cool looking mm-hmm. um still still are like you know i had recently like um blast points posted a picture of this willow trapper keeper and i was like oh my god i had at least the folder of that the the, the image just like clubbed me over the back of the head and i was like i absolutely remember having that i definitely had the magic like color changing cups from wendy's my childhood was very much like defined by collector's cups so i had all the stuff mm-hmm but I just it, the movie never really resonated with me. I it's shot in beautiful locations. You know, I love the main performances, especially rewatching them. I was like, Warwick Davis was like meant to be a star. Val Kilmer is obviously amazing in it, um, as is uh, Joanne Wally. But like, there's something about the movie specifically that it doesn't push itself far enough into the like the magical fantasy elements of it, especially as a movie about magical fantasy, especially in this era after all these really insane, intense, special effects, heavy fantasy movies came out during the eighties, it's like, it's always felt like the most like lacking to me in that regard. I kind of just had it with me that like Willow's not very good, <laughs> but <laughs> obviously rewatched it for this. And I was like, okay, I think I was being a little, little harsh on Willow. Cause there's moments that are super fun about it. And like, I'm not super precious about the movie. Like I am about other things from, from that era. And it's nothing against the movie itself at this point, because it's perfectly suitable to what it's supposed to be. But like, mm-hmm. not everyone experienced everything at the same time. So I just have to live with that, uh, especially in the phase of willow fever that's coming over people right now. To me, it just doesn't really hold up. Yeah. So it's interesting because I've watched, I have this connection to it from my childhood and I have very vivid like visual memories, sort of similar to you, because I remember my grandma once again, renting the VHS multiple times when I was throwing little, VHS trying, tapes at you, trying you know? to convince me to watch it, saying, "Oh, I rented Willow," and I'm like, "Like I said, scaredy cat kid." I see Commander Kale on the back, and I'm like, "Not watching mm. that." Um, but I do remember looking at the cover of the VHS tape, like very just like really enraptured by it was like that old like sort of like the illustrated poster that was for it was the cover yeah. of the VHS tape, and just mm-hmm. very enraptured by it. I was a 100% like fairies and mystical creatures obsessed kind of kid. One of those kids who's like, just like, I'm the fairy princess and everything is magic. Sure. So like high fantasy was 100% my jam. And anytime I could find some high fantasy that I would like not be too scared of, I was like, this is my jam. So mm-hmm. I was very excited to get into Willow. And when I first watched it, I think that I kind of, I mean, and I still do kind of like how it's a little bit more reserved than some of the other wild and crazy stuff. I remember when yeah. I watched Labyrinth the first time, and I love Labyrinth. But when I watched Labyrinth the first time, I was kind of like, um, this is too out there. Like, can, can we bring it back a little bit? <laughs> and even then, I was like, I always liked my fantasy to sort of follow that, like, sort of Campbellian hero's journey of, like, you yeah. have to go into the realm of the magic. And then, mm-hmm. so I remember being, I don't know, liking that in a way. And rewatching it nowadays, it's not a perfect movie. And it's it's definitely very much of its time. But I still love it so much because for me, it is so George Lucas despite the fact that it's a Ron Howard film it is so George Lucas it's got Lucas sounding dialogue it's got Lucas sort of world building and I love how he has always been so into sort of like sword and sorcery high fashion high high fantasy not high fashion (laughs) if anybody's not in a high fashion it's George Lucas no not George (laughs) high fantasy (laughs) high fashion lucas absolutely (laughs) yeah you know but um he he's so into high fantasy that it's like in all of the things he does it's in star wars everywhere so it was really fun and it remains to be really fun to watch him fully like just let go and play in a unabashed high fantasy sandbox so yeah that's what i mean like yeah there's a lot of nostalgia when i rewatch it um, sure. But it's great. It's so it's so sweet and sincere. You see it trying to like get some of the it exists in a post Lord of the Rings books world pre Lord of the Rings movies world where it's trying to get some of that sort of Lord of the Rings magic of like hobbits and a quest and mm-hmm. a fellowship and all these things. But it's not there yet. I mean, nobody really knew you could make movies of Lord of the Rings. But like the way that it sort of 
captures just like a, a reflection of that feeling for mm -hmm. me is very charming. I don't know. I just find it very charming to see how earnestly they were trying to capture something like that. It's an incredibly earnest film. That's the thing. It, and, and actually filling in the way that George Lucas tells stories and what he's inspired by over the years have definitely have helped the movie for me. And understanding that dialogue, like the Mad Mardigan love spell. Love potion. That he gives, yeah, yeah, that he gives to, that he gives to Sorsha is Lucasism's done right. Yes. You know, like it's and it, it it makes sense to me now when I see that, and especially in terms of like comparing it to like Attack of the Clones or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So it makes a lot more sense in that regard, and I do love the earnestness of the film and how completely sincere every moment is. I call it like the Tommy Boy effect. I always wonder if people think the movie Tommy Boy would be funny if they watched it now. Comedy has changed so much, et cetera, et cetera. And growing mm -hmm. up with Tommy Boy and thinking it's so funny, I don't know why it's specifically Tommy Boy that mm -hmm. I've centered on, but like it kind of feels that way. And you kind of hit upon something where like I watched it so minimally as a child that I pretty much count it as like I've never seen the movie. And mm -hmm. so watching it in a post Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings world, it just seems very bland because those movies are so rich and emotional and um, also very earnest, but um, mm -hmm. it's just hard to go backwards especially with how considered those Lord of the Rings films are. And that's really not fair to Willow for yeah, just, no. being, just, being, just being made like 15 years earlier or whatever. But um, and I mean, it's it, it, the Lord of the Rings movies are kind of one of those impossible feats of cinema that like, it's kind of like Star Wars where it's like, uh, we can't really be too hard on the predecessors because literally no one thought this would be possible to right. make a good movie yeah. out of this. And yet. <laughs> I, yeah. And then there's no going back after that, but you know, yep. You know, Lucas always loving to riff on things like, you know, Flash Gordon and then like, you know, 50s adventure serials for Indiana Jones. This was obviously his riff on Lord of the Rings. And when I first saw Fellowship of the Ring at the beginning, I was like, this reminds me a little bit of Willow. Oh, totally. <laughs> and you know what? That was great for me because I had such strong nostalgic ties to Willow. It's definitely a, a, like a gateway drug to Lord of the Rings for sure. It is. Yeah. You think you know what is real and what isn't. What is light? What is dark? Now, forget all you know. Come with me. Willow. We're looking for the sorcerer, Willow. I was told that once long ago you defeated the forces of evil. You remind me of your mother. I thought I could prevent all this. I was wrong. My brother was abducted. The world needs you again. It needs your magic. Follow me. If you're listening to this, you've probably seen Willow several times at this point. The new series that launched on Wednesday with two episodes, October 2020, the series was greenlit, went through a couple of different directors. John Chu was originally uh, attached to the project, and then Jonathan Entwistle was hired. Uh, and then he was out as well. So then Stephen Wolfenden came in. So it's been through a few iterations. You know, it's been kind of in the pipeline since like 2005 as a potentially a reboot. They eventually landed on it being a series and it premiered this week. Stephanie, what did you think of the first two episodes of Will, the TV show? I'm, I'm going to be quite honest. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I want. <laughs> okay <laughs> let me get my thoughts together hmm. i thought like i felt like a lot of times i was watching a show on the cw <laughs> with some of the ways that the dialogue and the characters were being presented to me which for me was very strange because i was looking very much forward to this series i've wanted a lot more in the willow universe since I was a kid, because I just was so enchanted by it. And I always thought, hey, this is a really fun world. I think it'd be great to play in it some more, explore with a little bit more sort of modern technology and a potential to explore new characters. I just felt like the tone did not match the tone of the original for me. And so I I kind of was missing because for me, all I would have really wanted for this show to really hit is I, I didn't have to have much. I just wanted really fun, high fantasy with that Willow 
earnestness that was kind of like Diet Lord of the Rings. And I that sounds bad, but that's what I like about Willow. Uh, <laughs> I like that about it, though. I genuinely do. I love that Willow is like Diet Lord of the Rings. For me, this did not feel like that. And I feel I felt a little disappointed because I felt like that wouldn't have been that hard to get to. I could get kind of nitpicky, but I'll let you go first. <laughs> Um, I, I think that saying Diet Lord of the Rings is just that plus like Riverdale. Yeah. The springboard for this show. Um, I'm really surprised by it. It's uh-huh. really jarring. And like I said, not having that much of an attachment to the original movie, I was hoping that the show itself would kind of fill in those gaps for me in terms of having the, like the modern technology, having a eight episodes, 10 episodes, however many episodes this the first season is going to be to kind of fill in the world, which always felt a little bit lacking to me. It's really cool that it like, it centers like a queer relationship out Love of the gate. Love that. Love that. Especially in a way that like they can't chop up to release in a different country, you know, yeah. like. Yeah, it's no, it's very, central it's, to the story. It's central to the story. So that's very cool. And I don't want to take away from that by saying all these other things about it. The American accents were very strange that, to me. That. Um. And the dialogue, I think at one point, Kit says McSleezoid. And I was like, okay, maybe that is nitpicky. But I was like, this doesn't feel like even the same world as the movie 30 no. years later. No, um, because the movie, I was while I was watching it, I was trying to figure out. I'm pretty sure most people had British accents in the movie. And I know that that is like a sort of trope of... um this sort of high fantasy genre maybe they're trying to break away with it from it in this but these kids sounded like they were from southern california totally and i was very confused about like the sort of disconnect i felt like between the just sort of the the soul of the first movie into this it just sort of felt like I was seeing visuals and story elements that were telling me this was the world of Willow, but nobody sounded like they were the same person or would even existed in the same timeline as that movie. And I, that, I felt the same way about Rings of Power, honestly. Like people were hating on that show for much different and much more nefarious reasons. I just kind of thought it felt really disjointed from the thing that I loved so much. You know, obviously, I'm not saying that about Willow because I just spent like 10 minutes saying how I have no real connection to it. Mm-hmm. It just felt like herd of willow in passing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantasy. Yeah. 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 2022. Yeah. 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 And whipped this up, which is just surprising. Cause it's, it's Jonathan Kasdan, the, the son of Lawrence Kasdan. And that's another element of it where I was like, this is just the force awakens willified, which might be nitpicky because it's like, this is a trope and a story and a way to tell a story. It's Campbellian. It's an effective way to reboot a story or, or have like a legacy sequel to something is to have the old character come in and be a little more curmudgeonly than before, but he's got, he's trying to find his way back to, they literally like at one point Willow sits down and is like, the art is an energy field with good and evil. And I was like, mm, wait a second. <laughs> like <laughs> what is, what's all this? And it just felt, piecemeal together and i don't know it looks great i think it looks great but it's just like mm-hmm. you nailed it exactly by saying it just seems like the suggestion of the willow verse an actual willow follow-up which was disappointing to me because i from the point of view of somebody who does have that emotional connection to willow i just kept thinking who is this for because the writing of the young characters sounded like it was really desperately trying to be like some sort of teen show but from like 2008 from 2008 yeah exactly like a a 2008 cw show but most fans of willow would be elder millennials or gen xers you know right who like grew up with it who want probably something that sounds more like willow i don't think like that the 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 teens are like <laughs> clamoring for Willow, you know? So I can almost guarantee that they're not clamoring for Willow. Which is why I find it interesting that the show decided to take this angle, which I was like excited about the the fact when I saw the casting and I I just sort of got the vibes from like trailers and things that there was a very young cast of like young actors and I thought they all looked really cool. 
it makes me kind of sad because I'm like, I'd be so stoked for like this show with these characters looking like this and this queer relationship and the costumes are great and the like settings are great and stuff. But like, like it's so quippy and like there's quips in the original Willow. Like it's got that sort of George Lucas-y punch to it in the original, but it's also like very, very like the prophecy and the the this and the that and the sorcery and the this. And then this is like, yeah, like you said, McSleezoid or whatever, you know? And I was like, what? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I'm really trying not to be too negative, but yeah, I I was not vibing with it. And that sounds like something they would say on the show. (laughs) This whole quest, I'm not vibing with it. Exactly. Um, What did you think about the reveal in the very first episode that Dove was... The grown-up Alora Dannon. I thought that was, you know, I actually kind of liked it. I, I, I felt I kept thinking I would have liked it better in a different, uh, a differently scripted show. <laughs> so, like, I, I think I, I liked the idea because w- when I was first watching, it, I was like, oh, okay, so where's the baby then? Where's Alora Dannon? I want to see the baby. I want to see the baby. <laughs> I would like to see the baby. <laughs> um, and, you know, this this mystical baby that I was supposedly a dead ringer for. I wanted to see the grown-up version, see if she looked anything <laughs> like me. Spoiler, she does not because I didn't actually look like that baby, Grandma. <laughs> but It'd be super funny if the grown-up Alora Dannon was just played by your sister and you didn't know it. Yeah, like, I like, know. Oh, Grandma was right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I was like, I don't know why. Maybe I was just too distracted by the dialogue, but I didn't see it coming. I wasn't like that one. That one's her. But then again, I feel like maybe I would have I was a little whiplashed by the tone. Sure. So when when that was revealed, I was like, cool, okay. I I would be I would be interested to see where this was going if they weren't all talking like they were on a 2008 CW show. <laughs> and I mean, why did she have an American actor accent? I looked it up and that British. actress is British. He's exactly. British. It makes no sense. Why, why no are sense. they doing that? I just like they they they're taking away all the high fantasy like prophecy and this and that. And these kids are supposedly Shorsha's kids, and she has a British accent. So why do they sound like they're from Southern California? What's going on? Americans can handle a British accent. We're we're good with it. Like yeah, um, we love it. Good. Actually, we really like it in high fantasy. The success yeah. of previous high fantasy solely being stocked with British accents is kind of I mean like and it's like I understand there's some problematic stuff with the British accent being like the default high fantasy accent and maybe if this were a completely new show that would make sense but we're basing it on the original Willow where most everyone had a British accent did Mad Mardigan Val, have a British accent? Val Kilmer's kind of trying to do a British accent in it okay and you and know that- it's not great but he's doing something <laughs> Which is why it doesn't make sense. Why his kids sound like they're from SoCal. His kids suck. Um, I know. <laughs> speaking of Mad Mardigan, that's another aspect of this show that I think is hugely lacking is that there's a giant Mad Mardigan shaped hole right in the center of it. We hear mention of him and the door is not completely closed on him being in the show at some point. I mean, obviously Val Kilmer has immense health issues he was going to be in the show, but couldn't even like hold the sword up because he was so ill at one point. So they had to essentially write him out. And I, and I do feel like, I feel like uh, Borman who is cool, who is really, I really like that character. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like he's kind of the, the surrogate mad Mardigan, but man is that presence missing from the yeah. show. And, you know, I, you know, you, I don't think Val Kilmer is in the shape or the state of mind to bring that kind of energy and mm-hmm. wit and timing to the role mm-hmm. at, at this stage of the game. So who knows that might've hurt it more than it helped it. But that relationship is just so crucial to, to the original Willow and Borman is cool, but he's no bad Mardigan. That being said, you know, there's two episodes out, you know, the first two episodes have to do a lot of heavy lifting mm-hmm. in terms of telling people what the hell Willow is, which mm-hmm. I, th- I really did think that they did pretty, pretty concisely and efficiently in the first little prologue of the movie. That little prologue, just served to remind me how different the movie felt from the show is the problem. Even with no one talking in it, the tone, I just remembered the tone and then the the disconnect was more noticeable in the show tonally. Right, right. But like, yeah, I mean, there could be, there they could 
get closer to the original tone, but they would have to drastically change the way the dialogue is functioning on the show. Plus, I still don't understand this decision to make everyone have an American accent, <laughs> except right. for Borman, who happens to be one of the most interesting sh- characters so far. So, and obviously Warwick Davis. So Warwick Davis is is crushing it. I think he, he's yeah. he's he, he's lighting up the screen every time he comes on. I you know I've watched the, I've watched the episodes twice, once when it first came out, and then again to prepare for this. I kind of don't know what's going on. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I I do I understand that they're trying to go rescue Prince Eric who was kidnapped by the, the withered crone, which just <laughs> makes me laugh so hard. It's like you withered old crone. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of all over the place. And after two episodes, it just doesn't really have like a firm direction, which, you know, maybe it's not, that's not fair to judge after two episodes, but like, or maybe that's just me aging out. But like, I was like, why did Prince Eric get kidnapped? Why would anybody go rescue that guy? Um, <laughs> why would anybody kidnap that guy? No. I'm sorry. <laughs> like across the shattered sea sounds pretty far away. And I'm not sure I'm making that trek to go find that guy. Cause he's, <laughs> I was like, this guy sucks. Like, he really I know. Sucks. And then I'm like, that's the guy that Alora's into the like, yeah. The chosen one is chose that. <laughs> I don't know. The the queer representation is fantastic, but like on the other hand, kind of really doesn't do much for heterosexuality. You know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of kind of a scathing indictment of of heterosexual. <laughs> maybe maybe that's maybe that's like a win, a win for the gays, I guess. But I'll take it. But still. <laughs> It's it's it really is. It's just like whoa. Okay, if you want to go get that guy, I guess go for it. Yeah. Will you keep watching it week to week? Uh, I'll see. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give it another shot. But if it doesn't transform into like the like expansion of that movie that I have that connection to, that I kind of wanted it mm-hmm. to be, I'll just say sure. you know what, live and let live. So I will always have Willow. Tell me one thing you liked about Willow the series. Um, the costumes. Sure. I really liked the costumes and I liked the uh, the queer stuff. I liked that there was a queer romance at the center of it. And I liked Aaron Kellyman. Also has a British accent. I really enjoyed Borman, the character. Um, I liked his big crazy sword. I like how the gales look mm-hmm. and how the withered crone <laughs> looks. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously the Scourge, too, who who is played by Jonas Sutamo, Chewbacca. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty cool. The the guy who has the whips that's kind of like the bad guy in Iron Man too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another point where I was like, "What? I don't know what's happening." Yeah. Um, it was cool to see Sorsha. I don't really know what we're doing with her. Uh, she seems really mean now. <laughs> like, yeah. She like lays into Willow, who like saved everyone and saved the kingdom. Um, and it's just like you're not a great sorcerer. And I was like, "Yeah, he is. He's doing fine. He's doing great." I know he's just trying to take people out with acorns, but, you know, give him a break. He saved your ass, mm-hmm. killed your evil mother. I uh, will see. I think this will be a wait and binge when it's over situation. And that's okay. It, it was a good lesson in that not everything is for everybody all the time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially after like Andor. Oh, you're like, my God. Oh, my yeah. God, I mean, needs- honestly, anything f- trying to follow Andor is uh, kind of screwed. <laughs> And it's really unfair. Clearly, apples and oranges in that situation. But it's like it, it's like after something that was so extremely for me to have this, where I'm like, okay, this is definitely not for me. Maybe it'll cater to the to a younger set, the Gen Z set or something. I'm not. Yeah, sure who I, who just we'll dying for some Willow? But you know. Willow might not have been our thing, but uh, as we both stated earlier, 80s fantasy is very much both of our things. And, um, you know, we thought it'd be a good opportunity to talk about some other 80s fantasy movies uh, that really spoke to us. Why do you think there was such a glut of fantasy movies in the 80s? What do you think allowed that to happen? It's really a singular decade for the sci- for the genre. Yeah, and you know what? I have been, I'm sure that there's somebody who like, is more well-versed in sort of like the cultural zeitgeist of the 80s and what led to this. The 80s is kind of a cool decade for movies and some music, but otherwise 
pretty shitty, <laughs> let's be honest, <laughs> for a lot of other things. It was also a great era for cocaine, which is I'm pretty yeah. sure the, reason, they, the answer to my question to full stop, but. And capitalism and Reaganism and lots of great, not great things, you know, <laughs> not, not, not great vibes. But I think that maybe it was a, it was also this time when there was this explosion in an interest in high fantasy stuff, Dungeons and Dragons sort of sure. really taking off in the 80s. And then all of these 80s high fantasy films. And I'm wondering if it's like a post-counterculture thing, because I know the counterculture is really into that stuff. And maybe like once the conservative sort of backlash of the 80s kind of just put all the fun times of the 60s and 70s down, maybe at least the foot of fairies and magic part of it could like stick around. <laughs> That's my number one thing. And then also just that a bunch of these nerds got to be filmmakers and cool movies uh cool special effects they're like let's mm -hmm. do it um but that's my super super uh educated guess <laughs> on on why i think it's i think it's smart i think it's i think it's highly likely that that's the reason i also you know i i tend to think everything in the 80s was a response to vietnam as well yeah and like in things like that like just this post post-american innocence mm -hmm. uh world where people are like just so desperately trying to catch on latch on to something that was hopeful that yeah you know, fantasy fantasy just blew up in that way and then also i'm sure like just the effects caught up you know yeah the effects exactly. caught up where, was, where you're able to create these worlds and um actually make them look believable now that i think about it it really does line up that a bunch of 70s a bunch of these filmmakers in the 70s were just like a bunch of hippies probably reading The Lord of the Rings, like all of the yeah, hippies were totally. being yep. like awesome. And then they become filmmakers in the 80s. They have the special effects and they say, why not try and capture some of that magic? I think that there was just that sort of mood in the air amongst a bunch of these guys at that time. There's, a, there's at least like 50 that you can list. There's so were, many. There's like, Actually, there's when so I was... Many. Trying to figure out my top three, I started being a little overwhelmed with choice. <laughs> yeah, you saw me firsthand, like panic attack. I was like, I don't even know what to put on my list. Mm -hmm. I, why don't we uh, launch into that and um, start with your number three? My number three pick for favorite 80s fantasy. And this is a curveball because it's not what I was originally going to put on my list. Originally, my oh, number three pick was going to be Willow. But then I figured I'd express my love of Willow up top when I talked about Willow. So sure. I will go and say, uh, for my number three, Dark Crystal. The great conjunction comes. Now we will live forever. This is a number three because it is weird. It is insane. It is Jim Henson on steroids it's jim henson on it's all of jim henson's weirdness of like sort of this sort of hippie wild what can we do with puppets craziness saying what if we made a straight up totally serious high fantasy film with just puppets and you know what it's kind of weird and it's definitely traumatizing for young kids <laughs> but it is just like that sheer spunk like just that 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 determination to just try something insane like that for me yeah. is just the epitome of 80s fantasy it does not always work in fact i th i would say nine times out of ten this genre didn't land <laughs> but when it didn't it really shot for the stars because it was just saying what if we could just do this crazy thing and get it to work. And you know what? That movie is just wild to look at because it's, yeah, it's all puppets. Those goddamn Skeksis. They're so scary. Uh, they're the scariest things ever. And I think that's a core facet of 80s fantasy too, is it has to at least like establish your set of fears as a child from watching it as a kid if that's it like doesn't part of deeply it. like, traumatize you and affect your psychic scarring yeah. for your entire life <laughs> it is not true 80s fantasy that also includes the black cauldron which i was an honorary mention didn't make it on this list 
I saw when I was a kid, I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> oh my gosh. There are parts of the Black Cauldron that they had to edit out because they were too scary. Like, it's really strange. Like, and I'm not talking about in like in a performative, like those things really scared me. It was, it's like a real, it's like a deep existential, like philosophical dread that these 80s movies somehow like instilled in you as a kid. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Did you watch um, uh, Age of Resistance, the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance? You know, I was I was really psyched to see it, and then when Netflix didn't renew it, I got sad. But does it have a good conclusion? Uh not really. But it's awesome. It's really, <laughs> That's it's the just... problem because it's looked so cool, and then I I just hate watching things that aren't finished. So I was like, yeah, I actually I haven't seen it since it first came out, so it might. But when I was watching it, I was just like, this is awesome. This is just so cool to be back in this world. It was kind of the promise of what Willow, what I wanted Willow to be for the Dark Crystal, even though I definitely have a stronger relationship with the dark crystal i love this movie did you want to add anything else about it or nope just just that it's awesome um and i love that little fluffy thing (laughs) (laughs) dust bunny creature (laughs) a fizz gig a fizz gig of course of course duh yeah (laughs) how stupid can we be i just have to ask you a question what is best in life and the answer is conan the barbarian this is good what is best in life? The open step. Free tours. Falcons at your wrist. And the wind in your hair. Wrong! Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear a lamentation of their women. That is good. That is good. The 1982 John Milius classic. This movie fucking rules. It's so <laughs> awesome. I was o- definitely overthinking this list. Like when I landed on Conan the Barbarian, I was just like, of course. Like mm-hmm. I f- love this movie. Why didn't I think about that to begin this with? This move. This list um, would be utterly incomplete without it. Yeah, I think people would probably uh, ask for the podcast to be taken off the RSS feed if that was the case. <laughs> but um, yeah, obviously starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Earl Jones, uh, Sandal Bergman, Ben Davidson, Cassandra Gaviola. Gary Lopez and our guy Mac von Sydow mm-hmm. from um, Seventh Seal, from all the uh, the old Ingmar Bergman films. Yeah, this movie just rules. It has everything you would ever want. It has a wheel of pain. <laughs> it has giant snakes. It has snake arrows, snake cults, snake <laughs> uh, it's transformations. Got, it's got snake transformations. Uh, it's got barbarian sex. It's got decapitations. Sadly, of mothers. That's just the world of Conan the Barbarian. Uh, it's got dismemberment. It's got James Earl Jones. You know, obviously Arnold's had so many iconic performances throughout the years. I think this one gets overlooked somehow. I mean, mm-hmm. just because he's, you know, Terminator, Dutch, in Predator. Kind of forget about Conan sometimes, but I'm here to tell you, don't forget about Conan the Barbarian because nope. it fucking rules. And that's my number three. All right. My number two is one, the only, and I think we might have a little crossover here, Labyrinth. <laughs> My number two is Labyrinth as well. labyrinth but i mean like how could it not be this movie it has everything i watched it on a vhs tape in my rented from the local video store in my after school program when i was a kid and it was just magical fantasy fulfillment of like a dreamy preteen suddenly getting whisked off to this wild world of david bowie and music and i don't you know, it's just one of those movies you just can't get out of your head. It's so good. And it's one of my all-time favorites. And you know what? I still, I think that it has some interesting things to say about female fantasy and escapism. But also the ultimate end of it is to say, you have no power over me, which is something really important, I think, for, I think, a very formative message for for teenage girls to sort of get this idea that they can indulge in these fantasies but also like they don't have power over them i don't Mm -hmm. know i always loved that and i felt like very connected to that and yeah labyrinth it's also kind of works against like uh like toxic fandom at this point Mm -hmm. too where it's like you can reject 
the idea that men gatekeep high fantasy or mm-hmm. uh, I like that two of your three are Jim Henson movies. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that's great. The subtitle of this movie originally was David Bowie's Bulge, the movie. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, that's another factor. Warwick Davis, in, in an interview for like the Willow Press Tour, said that David Bowie shoved seven pairs of socks down his pants for this movie, which is really hilarious to me. But yeah, I mean, obviously Bowie is Jareth, yeah. uh, and Jennifer Connelly is Sarah, uh, and then David Bowie's penis as itself. The creature work in this movie is just so phenomenal, and you know, I think about Ludo, and I, I just just one of the the greatest, most like indelible fantasy characters. Like, I, it's like the Rock Eater from Neverending Story, which is also mm-hmm. like in contention and ludo i think are like neck and neck for like most recognizable creature from my childhood you know and man that soundtrack it just fucking rules it's so good um i have in the notes i wrote chili down greater than magic dance when i picked up my boys from school today i was listening to to magic dance uh and i i am wrong on that front because magic dance is an all-timer the chili down lyrics are so inappropriate when you look at them extremely inappropriate (laughs) also Uh, my um my sister was once a fiery for halloween (laughs) <laughs> so, that's amazing yeah <laughs> did your grandma think she, that uh the fireys looked like hers uh you know i i don't know if she saw this one <laughs> <laughs> she's too busy watching willow for the 500th time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also i saw this movie recently at the wealthy theater uh shout out to caleb at the end watching it as an adult i was like oh my gosh like she was very lonely <laughs> she was a very lonely disassociative person that was mm-hmm. like that's also a real trope of 80s movies is like the latchkey abandoned kid with like child of divorce or, uh, or, or unfulfilling marriage or like, you know, whose parents are always fighting that just locks themselves in their room and lets their boredom whisk them away to some mm-hmm. far off land. And it's like oddly depressing to think about. Yeah. But it's also I just saw the Fablemans recently and I was just thinking about how difficult it'll be for kids growing up in like the age of technology to find a hobby like filmmaking. Mm -hmm. That's just part of their life is never being bored, never taking time to like be bored and have those ideas come to you to entertain yourself because Mm -hmm. the world has kind of designed itself to make it so you're never, ever, ever bored. So Mm -hmm. it was, it's, it's kind of a depressing thought. It really lifts these movies up because they came from such an era of immense imagination. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to show my boys this movie. I don't think they're quite old enough for it yet. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It might be a little scary for them, but they will probably love the tank part a lot. So, Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's just so many parts of this movie where I'm like, how the fuck did they do this? The how talking this? hands, like all those talking hands are yeah, so cool. It's wild. <sighs> One thing I realized recently is there's always this like weird, hazy mystique to 80s movies. The spaces they were they occupied always seemed like huge cavernous and like, really ethereal and and bizarre and i just realized recently i was like oh that's matte paintings that's Mm -hmm. why Mm -hmm. it's just like hand-painted backgrounds that are beautifully rendered but also like really lends this amazing aesthetic to these movies like i don't know and uh there's a lot of that in this movie and there's a lot of my number one as well but we'll 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 go with your number one first all right my number one are we ready i'm ready time to reveal my obsession for a large period of my life with the film Excalibur. Wow, it's the number one. <laughs> it's my number one pick. A wizard's ancient spell. Into the eyes of the dragon and in despair. And the lust of a lord. I must have her. One night with her. Give birth to an empire. Behold the sword of power. Excalibur. All right, where to start with this? Okay, so this movie is formative to my understanding of what I want out of high fantasy. I saw it when I was 100% way too young to see this. This movie is like a hard R. Yeah. (laughs) This blood, it's sex, it's got all this stuff that I should not have seen when I was like 12, I think, when I saw it. Which is like, I guess, oldish enough to like sort of understand what I was seeing, but not really. But I did kind of bully my dad into showing it to me. So it's not on him. It's on me and my sister, because this is one of his favorite movies of all time. And I was 
a big old nerdy fantasy kid who was obsessed with King Arthur stories. And I just was like, he had this VHS of it that had this most incredibly 80s cover art on it. And I just would look at it and be like, this is the live action Sword in the Stone, isn't it? And my dad would be like, well, yeah, sort of. And I'd be like, we're watching it. And he's like, okay. And he's probably forgot how inappropriate it was when he showed it to me. But eh, whatever. (laughs) It is what it is. (laughs) I loved this movie so much that I immediately asked my dad to play all of the like Wagner music that was in it to me (laughs) when I'm like, you know, 12 i'm like let's i want to hear that song that's at the beginning of this movie and then my dad's like okay and my and then my dad like quotes this movie constantly so i've like memorized the whole movie and can quote it constantly and also yeah i would like make my friends watch it because i'd be like this movie is so cool and my friends would be like huh I'd be like, I'd be like, can you ask your mom if you can watch a rated R movie that has sex in it? And they were like, okay. But listen, listen, I still love this movie. I want, I've watched it recently. This movie is the ultimate, only possible cinematic adaptation of the King Arthur stories, maybe except for the Green Knight. And here's why because it's ridiculous, it's over the top. It has absolutely no care in the world for historical accuracy. Everybody's wearing 1500s armor. It's not accurate to the quote unquote dark ages when this stuff was supposedly taking place. Yet it is 100% accurate to the energy of how King Arthur exists in the culture. It is 100% accurate to how the people telling the King Arthur stories in like the medieval era were like putting in all these anachronisms. I mean, King Arthur was like one of the first like places where people just went crazy and like did fan fiction and like cosplay. Mm -hmm. Like back in the medieval days, they were basically writing King Arthur fan fiction. Like they were like, what if Lancelot had to fight this monster? Oh my God, what if this person had to do this thing? So like this movie, by being like a pretty straight up adaptation of Le Mortatur, but also just like having this extremely over the top dialogue that is just so dramatically delivered. It just feels like you're watching and the visuals, it feels like you're watching a pre-Raphaelite painting as a movie or you're listening to like how Alfred Lord Tennyson would have written King Arthur as a movie. And you know what? I just, I just love it. (laughs) I just love it so much. It's so over the top. I love it. I think it's the only way you could do King Arthur that unless you're going to go batshit wild, like the green Knight. but you know what? The green Knight really reminded me of this movie in a lot of ways, because it was also really trippy. Like this movie is. And also Helen Mirren, it's just so hot in it. <laughs> and it's just great. And then, you know, it's just got those lines and it's just like opens with the music and then Merlin walks out of the mist and he's like, Uther! and it just, it's, it just goes, oh, it's so good. I'm sorry. I can keep going. This is, I could just keep going and like start quoting lines upon lines. I'm not going to do that to you. That's the, the the first Patreon tier for the, the first Patreon the, tier the podcast. It's just Stephanie quoting Excalibur. Oh, but the king you should be afraid. <laughs> uh, I hate to say this, I've never seen this movie. Um, you need to get on this, okay? <laughs> I'm probably gonna fire it up as soon as we as soon as this we, movie uh, is this insane. The uh, cover art is enough to make me watch it. Um, yes, I watched. I watched the trailer earlier. Is it uh, Ofortuna from? Ofortuna is used in it. The most most okay. of the score is all like pre existing um, classical music, which is really that's, interesting. So it uses like Wagner's like the Ring, like Siegfried's Funeral March, and like Tristan and Isolde, and it also has like old Gregorian chants and yeah, it has O Fortuna in it. And it's like, crazy. it's insane. And like, but there's stuff in it. Like it, it became part of my like cinematic DNA. So like, I would always see reflections of it in stuff like star Wars. But what I really think I was seeing was not so much reflections of 
Excalibur and stuff like Star Wars, but reflections of Arthurian legend and stuff like Star Wars, because I think that Excalibur just managed to somehow visually and atmospherically capture like the sort of very romanticized Arthurian vibe. Yeah, it slaps, (laughs) (laughs) to say the least. But yeah, yeah, I did see it when I was way too young, and I don't want to think about what that impacted on my psyche. Helen Mirren is really... Always hot. Always hot, and you know. (laughs) Excalibur slaps. What are you, a cast member of Willow, the TV show? I am. (laughs) When it comes to Excalibur, not not in any other way. You know, I considered movies like Dragon Slayer for my list. Yeah. Crawl was at my number one for a moment, but then I rewatched it. It rules, but it's definitely not number one. And at the end of the day, I thought about The Adventures of Baron Von Chazen. Mm -hmm. But then that helped me arrive at my actual number one, which is Time Bandits, uh, directed by Terry Gilliam. It's on the page one. See? Time bandits can offer you much, much more. It's not the special effects or flying men or droids which makes Time Bandits a unique cinematic. Cinematic! You know, pertaining to the cinema. Cinematic experience, it's the makeup. Yes, folks, you've never seen anything like it. Men made up to look like monsters. Monsters made up to look like men. Look alike men made up to look different. Different men made up to look alike. No expense has been paired, spared on the pan stick, the pan stick. No expense has been spared flying in the world's greatest makeup man. Just a minute, just a minute. What about the plot? The what? The plot. What the film is about. Well, I haven't seen it, have I? The funny thing is I I didn't consider it because for me, Terry Gilliam movies are so their own thing. But now that you mention it, this is 100% within this genre. You know, fantasy can be so many different things. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to represent different facets of it. I had that same thought where I was like, does this count? Because clearly there's fantasy elements to it, but it's like time traveling through historical events. Well, well, I mean, kind of, kind of historical events, like killing a a minotaur is not really a historical event, but um, for me, Terry Gilliam unlocks every aspect of what eighties fantasy is to me, which is this really almost nightmarish state of being. Uh, It unlocks your imagination in, in such different ways. The tagline for time bandits is it's all the dreams you ever had and not just the good ones. And to me, that's eighties fantasy. It's like, it can take you to such such nightmarish lows and then such amazing highs. This is actually part of Terry Gilliam's Imagination Trilogy, starting with Time Bandits in the conversation for my top five favorite movies of all time, Brazil, and then you know ending with Adventures of Baron Munchausen. You know, all three of these movies, I mean, Brazil, I don't think really counts as, as fantasy. It's more, it's more dystopian sci-fi, I guess. This movie's got it all. It rules. Mm-hmm. It's like the same kind of element of, labyrinth uh jennifer Connolly's character with the, the main character kevin here like you know his parents are awful and he just wants to escape and escape he does into the, the time stream with randall and fidget and strutter and og and wally and vermin and they, they go on this quest through time using this map because these characters are all supposed to help fix holes in time for the supreme being who's you know, keeps the time and space together. And they decide it's just easier to use the map to steal gold and riches for themselves, which is just like such a cool idea for a movie to begin with. I'm a huge Monty Python guy. So that's my King Arthur legend is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Michael Palin's in this and John Cleese is in this as Robin Hood. This is what I was talking about with like those nightmarish images and like those matte paintings that are just so transformative and just so bizarre. Like there's a moment where they throw a skull and like shatter the glass of reality and it it reveals this like castle carved in the side of a mountain and it's just i can't get that image out of my head it's just for some reason terry gilliam movies specifically do this to me where they just make me feel like i'm sleeping while i'm awake when the movie starts and like the time bandits fall out of kevin's closet and into his room the supreme being which is like this animated head is coming down the hallway and chasing after them that's a horror movie it's terrifying Mm mm-hmm Played, it's played as a comedy, and that's just to me is like the, the the dynamics of, of of Terry Gilliam's whole whole aesthetic. It's just a, a voice that cannot be replicated. Yeah. Um, and I had to shout out David Warner's role in this movie as evil, uh, just completely unhinged, 
almost Power Rangers-y in a way, like proto Power Rangers villain, but take it up like 20 notches. It's really, it's so, it's so wild. Yeah, Time Bandits, look it up. They're all, they're rebooting this for Apple TV+. Taika Waititi is really hit or miss for me. And they're like, they're adapting it with like Lisa Kudrow is in it. And I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem like the same thing, but you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that it'll end up being great. And if it, so. and if it's not great, you'll always have... We'll always have the original. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My childhood will not be ruined. Just like my um, childhood has not been ruined by Willow, <laughs> the show. <laughs> I mean, so that's that's my number one is Time Bandits. So. Lovely. Wonderful uh, pick. Did you have, I mean, did you have any other like honorable mentions you wanted to share? <sighs> honorable mentions are just too many to name. I mentioned The Black Cauldron, which is an honorable mention in so much as it was a traumatizing film that I still insisted on watching repeatedly when I was a kid and then uh, never ending story that was another one a lot of these films were rentals during my uh after school uh extended day program years where I had like some of my like best times like just sort of they just would let us go to the the video uh rental place near and like rent anything that was pg or g um but that meant we rented all the 80s movies that probably should have been rated PG-13 that were rated PG and just watched all of them. <laughs> and this is where I saw uh, Temple of Doom. And this is where I saw all of these labyrinth and multiple James Bond movies. And and definitely, yeah, Never Ending Story was one of them. And that was one of those ones that I was just like all here for. So, yeah, those are my, um, those are my honorable mentions. But... It's just so hard to oh, pick. Yeah. There's so many. There's so many. I, I mean, I mentioned Crawl. Mm-hmm. I also mentioned Never Ending Story. I didn't know if Masters of the Universe counted as a fantasy movie. Uh, I think like it does. Lundgren. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if that's the case, that's my number one. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie so much. Frank Langella's Skeletor in that movie is like probably one of the best performances of all time. I used to get the ending of, of Masters of the Universe confused with the ending of Return of the Jedi. Um, because Skeletor also gets thrown down a massive like hole in the ground in a mm-hmm. giant face station y type thing. And at the end his head like pops up and he's like, Maybe I'll be in the next movie or something like that. And I always thought the Emperor did that, which would be really strange if that was how Star Wars ended. Well, uh Master of the Universe is definitely on my list. Uh Clash of the Titans is eighty one, so that probably should be everybody's number one because that movie is incredible. Uh, this movie called Deathstalker, which I, I is just like probably w- wouldn't have made my list. I just wanted to shout it out because it's real crazy. That's on there. Uh, what else? Oh, Lady Hawk. I can't forget Lady Hawk. Uh, it's very slow and very boring, but I love Lady Hawk. Mm-hmm. Probably shows that my taste in movies is terrible, but Lady Hawk's good. <laughs> Everyone else will probably scream at me, but I don't like The Princess Bride. Um, you know what? The Princess Bride kind of, I kind of forgot about it as one of these. I think it's too much of a fairy tale to be a high fantasy. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure it had to need to be high fantasy. I just, yeah, it's a little, it's a little too cutesy for me as, you know, a hardcore fantasy lover. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, if, if it makes um, you feel any better, I just was quickly looking up Excalibur and I, I saw on the Wikipedia entry that it was Zack Snyder, that it is Zack Snyder's favorite film. And now I'm wondering what that says about me. Or I just have to go rethink my life for a second. It's such a good oh, movie, yeah. but like, why? <laughs> he wishes he could do that, I think. It's always a good podcast when you end up dissing Zack Snyder for no reason. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Also Beastmaster. Oh, Beastmaster. Yeah. yeah. Do we fuck up? Should we start our lists over? No. If I had to do it all over again, I probably would put Masters Universe at number one because <laughs> it's it's just it's just right there. It's just so good. Return to Oz, I think, is on my list too. Oh um, yeah, that movie was another one from my, the from the after school program. Traumatized me. The wheelies can get fucked. Traumatizing, but I also loved it. I was a weird kid. <laughs> I'm really realizing that growing up in the 80s is like the one thing that's defined me as a person. It's just like... (laughs) Will the TV series, we'll see how it goes. We'll continue on with some more coverage this month of uh, possibly Avatar The Way of Water as it comes out. 
Um, we have the naughty and nice list coming out at the end of the year to review our favorite and not so favorite things of the year. Uh, Silver from Star Wars Thrifting and Into the Garbage Shoot podcast will be joining me for that one. We have a really, really fun, special fifth anniversary of The Last Jedi episode coming up with Brandon from Talking Bay 94 and also Jason from Blast Points and Stephanie, of course, will all be here. It'll be our first four person podcast. Woo-hoo. Take me about eight weeks to edit, but that's okay. <laughs> Um, so stay tuned. Lots of great stuff coming up. And then obviously a lot of amazing shows coming up in the new year. So thank you for listening. Hey, also thank you to everyone for taking us in your Spotify wrapped at the end of the year. It was really cool to see something that was like built from nothing, get tagged in people's Instagrams that I don't even really know. Thank you so much for listening and, and for, for putting it out there and telling your friends about the show. It's really appreciated. With that being said, we will see you next time. Thanks, Stephanie. See ya. See ya. See ya.